This morning, I would like to talk to you about, as it says in uh, another text that we'll get to later, the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Um, There's a couple different reasons I want to talk to you about this. Um, One, because we need to understand exactly what grace God has offered us. And what I mean by this is I don't think this is going to be an exhaustive list of all the graces God has bestowed upon us because one, as the title that I've given this lesson lesson from a verse suggests, it's kind of immeasurable, right? It's unwieldy in that way. Like we kind of can't ever quite understand the depths and the ways in which God shows us His grace. But I think there are some plainer ways that God says, hey, this is my grace, and it is this, or it is this, or it manifests itself in this way. And I want to look at a few of those. And Acts 17 is really the basis on which I want to look at a few of, and I'm going to say it this way, the graces of Jehovah, our God. I was thinking about this actually just before I had to get up to begin this lesson. Is I've spoken... I spoke last Sunday and I spoke this Sunday, which last Sunday was the Sunday after Christmas. This Sunday is the first Sunday of the year, and I'm not doing a lesson appropriate to either context. I'm not doing the Christmas story last week, and I'm not doing anything about making goals or being resolute this year. So that's a little bit of a failure on my part, but I hope you'll stick with me through this lesson because I think um, in your own mind and in your own ways that this lesson can motivate you for this new year. So in in Acts chapter 17, I want to highlight a few of the things said here. Acts chapter 17. Beginning in uh, verse 22 through 31, Robin read for us this big section where Paul addresses um, religious people, I guess you could say, in Athens, in Greece. right? Athens might not have been the center of the world anymore. That might have transitioned to Rome at this point. But as far as the intellectual and the metaphysical and the philosophical, I think Athens was still kind of the epicenter of all that stuff. And so it makes sense that when Paul begins talking to the people here, he goes to this place known for these kinds of discussions, and he looks at a statue in verse 22, and he begins by saying, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're religious. And one is because he notices this statue that says, To the unknown God, and he uses this as a platform to begin discussing the God that they don't know, Jehovah. But look at these phrases. Uh, Beginning here, it says, Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's the end of verse 25. Another one here. He is not far from each one of us. End of verse 27. In Him we live and move and have our being. Is the beginning of verse 28. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. That's verse 30. Having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. And that's verse 31. That's five. I'm sure you were counting as I went through them, right? That's five, I think, examples of God's grace. 
And we're going to talk about maybe a little bit in which capacity or what capacity each one of these shows us God's grace. And that's what we're going to kind of be spending this lesson on. But Paul, without coming out and saying, I'm going to show you five ways in which God is gracious to us. He elaborates on the graciousness of the Lord in different ways by the things that he says. Have you ever, uh, grace is kind of one of those topics that uh, is talked about a lot kind of in religious circles these days. I think topics, popular topics come in waves throughout the years. Um, Maybe there was a time, you know, where the justice of the Lord is what people really harped on. You know, times are tough, and so you dwell on the justice of the Lord. I feel like we're in a time where we, we speak on love and mercy a lot. Grace, right? Have you heard these kinds of phrases? If it wasn't for the grace of God, insert something, right? By God's grace, then you insert something else again, right? By God's grace, I'm here standing, right? Someone might say something like that. God has graced me or us with... And then they'll say that thing, right? I am in God's good graces. We even have that phrase, even when we're not talking about God, right? You're in someone's good graces. Uh, I have been graced with, insert something, you, he, she, whoever you're talking about, fell from grace or fell from God's grace, right? We have these phrases in English and in the states that we use that harp on this concept of grace. Um, And if we don't have a biblical understanding of what grace really is about and the ways God explicitly says, this is my grace, we kind of end up with like a moving definition depending on the context, right? If we just allow ourselves to define grace based on the way we use it in our conversation, we end up kind of with a muddy idea of what exactly that is. And so I think Acts 17 begins to outline for us the ways in which God shows us grace. So let's move into um, the points that I want to make. I believe the first three that I read from this section illustrate what some people call common grace. And what they mean by that is grace that is given to everybody. Believe it or not, God has shown you grace in certain key ways, whether you accept it, whether you deny it, whether you want it or not, it's common to everyone. The first three of these, again, I'll read them to you. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Anyone that's ever come into existence has experienced that by God's grace, whether they acknowledge that or not. The second one is, he is not far from each one of us, or from every one of us. There's a second grace that is common to all of man. And that's really the basis in which Paul comes to the people in Athens, right? He's not that far away. You can find him, right? That's common to all of us. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God is near and is able to be found. And we're going to talk more about that. In him, we live and move and have our being. That's a common grace. Not only has God created us and given us everything and is... Uh, able to be discovered or found, but that he's actually sustaining us. It's not that he creates us and then pulls out and we are just self-destruct in the sense of literally we stop existing. God is sustaining us. We're living and moving and having our, our being through him, whether we acknowledge that or not. Common grace, a gift of God, 
This is the idea of a common grace. A gift of God's grace to humanity in general, which demonstrates a desire on God's part to bestow certain blessings on all human beings, believer and non-believer alike. You are created and you are sustained by God's grace, whether you believe that or not. And He is near to you whether you believe that or not. Those are the graces that He shows to everyone. Example of this is in Genesis 126, eh? uh, 126, and I'll just read this here. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is he himself giving to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so we've all experienced that grace. An example of the second two, which were uh, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent and having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. Those were in verses, uh, if I believe it was 28 and 31 of Acts 17. Those are more specific. Those are what some people might call God's saving grace, right? While we all experience the common grace of God creating us and sustaining us and being near, being discoverable, if you will, to us, not everyone experiences those graces, right? While you might say everyone has been given the grace of God overlooking their times of ignorance, not everyone's heeded really the fullness of that grace in coming to repentance, right? It doesn't do you any good for God to overlook the times of ignorance when you don't actually come to repentance. So you haven't really experienced that grace um, unless you've done something. It's It's more conditional than the common graces, right? And in fact, the last part in verse 31, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead, is part of this saving or more specific grace that God is offering. Saving grace or specific grace can be kind of defined this way. A grace that is directed at a select group of recipients, which demonstrates a desire on God's part to bestow certain blessings on specific human beings. And what I mean by this is, not that God says, Stephen, you can have this grace and Chuck, you can't, or vice versa. But rather, he says, someone who receives this grace will do this. And so then, by that process, he's selecting certain individuals. I.e., the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now calls every man everywhere to repentance. If Stephen doesn't repent... That grace is not his, but if Chuck does, he has that grace. And so that's what I mean by this select or this saving grace. Is it's not common. God doesn't just say, there's no repentance necessary, you're forgiven anyway. But that it is specific in that way. And so in Acts 17, Paul says, in different ways and in different expressions, God is gracious, Right? To an unknown God, you're able to find Him. That's a common grace. Anyone can find God. He's near. 
All of us are living and sustained because God is gracious. But there's more. You need to be seeking more grace from the Lord. You need to be seeking the grace that will actually save your soul. And so that's what he's pushing for in Acts 17. Pursue more grace. Isn't that really the call to be a Christian? If we want to know God, we recognize the grace that he's given to us, but we want more of it, right? Isn't that kind of like the, the deepest desire of a believer? Should be, I want to experience more of God's graciousness. Well, that's what this concept lends itself to, is that you can. God has kind of given us the common grace to get us started, to recognize, hey, God's gracious. Let's seek some more of that. And then he pours out more for those who seek, right? And so I want to examine a couple of, uh, in more detail, the common and the saving grace. We'll start with kind of this grace that everybody experiences, whether they want it or not. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, Acts 17, verse 25, you exist because God was gracious enough to create you. I don't know if I think about creation in terms of grace most of the time, but that's really the way it's portrayed, is it was a gracious thing for the Lord to create you. And if you look at it from your side of things, as a believer, assuming most people in this room are believers, right? We look at our existence and we're grateful for that, right? I'm glad I exist. I don't have any other way to think about it, right? Like if I didn't exist, right? What would I have to be thankful for? Why would I not wish myself into existence? And so we recognize the graciousness of the Lord because it's certainly something he didn't have to do. And you have some place to exist and other things to exist with or uh, around because God was gracious enough not to leave you kind of in a void, right? Like he didn't just create you in a vacuum and there was like nothing around you. Acts 17, like I read a moment ago in verse 25, it says that not only does he give you life and breath, but he also gives you everything. Anything that you experience or do or hate or enjoy or whatever is a thing that God has graced to you. The, last, uh, the other part of this is in him we, lo- we move and we have our being. You continue to exist and live because God graciously sustains you. We mentioned that earlier, but I want to look at Colossians 1.16. Uh, this maybe rounds out this concept. In Colossians 1.16 it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think that is a more detailed description of what Paul is saying in Acts 17 when he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. There's not one thing that is apart from God in that way. That is the creator-creation relationship. He starts it and he sustains it. Right? There is no creation without the intent and the grace of a creator. He is not far from each one of us. It's not that God's created us and set us adrift on the sea of life to go it alone, but that he is near to each one of us. And really what Paul is trying to get the people in Athens to do 
is not just to say God is out there, but that God is right here. Right? That's kind of the shift that he wants them to make. To the unknown God, right, the statue, there's probably a God out there somewhere far away that we've neglected to honor. And God is saying, no, he's right here, and you need to honor him. And so that's really what he's trying to get at. I mean, it's, I think the psalmist recognizes this in Psalm 46, verse 1, when he says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. I think the psalmist there is alluding to how near God is and how he is actually there for each one. Also in Jeremiah 29, verse 12, it reads this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think that's what Paul's urging the people in Athens to do. When he said, He is not far from each one of us. Because God is near and he is able to be found. You know, he hasn't like hidden himself. It's not like he's near, but in like crazy God-like ways, even though he's right next to you, it's impossible to find him. He can make that happen, even though he's right next to you, right? But God is saying, I'm near and I've made myself known. I'm close and I'm able to be found. So, so why does this even matter? Why does it matter that we understand that those are common graces he's given to everyone? There's not one person that's ever existed that wasn't created by God, sustained by God, and able to find God. There's not one. Why does that matter? Well, one is that understanding the grace that we have received as God's creation should begin to humble us. I think that's kind of the first step. Like, I'm not here of my own volition or will. I didn't get here on my own. I'm not still here because of me, right? And the last one, that God is near us, I can't continue to be on my own, right? So it should begin to humble us when we understand the graces God has given everyone. It also should foster thankfulness. Like when we really understand the grace that it's taken for me to get to this point just existing, I should be more thankful. You know, the thing about uh, the misunderstanding that we come from evolution or we come from, you know, a bang or we come from whatever you decide we come from, does it leave you with any kind of gratitude? You know? That's the unique thing about a creator is he didn't have to create. He chose to create. And so it leads us not only to be humble, like, wow, I'm not as big and mighty as I thought I was, but also should lead us into thankfulness. Like, wow, I'm really glad that he decided to do that. Do it the way he did it. And lastly, I see in this, and I'm, you may be able to find more things, is it should propel us when we understand these basic graces, like I said earlier, to seek more. When I see that God is gracious in some simple and basic ways, I say, what other grace can he show to me? Is there any more out there? Is there more things or more graces I can experience? Is God's graciousness stop here or can I keep going? I think that is finally and ultimately maybe the most important thing is that it should propel us understanding these basic things to seek more grace. So let's look at the more grace, the, the, the abundance of grace that God will pour on if, those, if we keep seeking it. Um, the passage in Acts 17 that reads... Uh, this 
the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's verse 30 of Acts 17. What does this mean? Well, I think the context here is the implication of what he says in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in, and here's his standard, righteousness. Right. By a man whom he's appointed, and this he will give assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When we look at this phrase, I say, what does this mean? And I have to think, instead of destroying mankind who's unrighteous, That's the story of humanity is our pursuit of unrighteousness in a lot of ways. Instead of destroying them, God is giving us an opportunity to change. Isn't that a grace of our God? He didn't have to do that. He could have just said, that's a bummer. I hate that they chose that. It's not going to work out for them, right? But rather, he says... He's going to allow a time of ignorance so that we can come to repentance. Um, this reminds me of 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm sure you guys are thinking this verse, whether or not you realize it's 2 Peter 3 or not. In verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Isn't that really what he's saying in Acts 17? The times of ignorance, God's overlooked. Not just for overlooking's sake, not that he's now going to allow unrighteousness, but rather that he's commanding everyone to repent. That is a grace of our Lord. That When we understand the basic graces and we seek him more, we see this grace. That he's given us a chance to repent. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says this, uh, Who, this being God, God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And I think this emphasizes the same point as well. While God's command is to all mankind, only those seeking more of God's grace will heed him in this. You know, if I'm presented with the truth that God's grace is what brought me here, and God's grace is what sustains me, and I reject that truth, what motivation do I have to do this part? I'm going to guess it's pretty much zero, right? I've been there. I've felt that. Like, ah, and so I didn't do this part. I didn't repent and live righteously. But those who recognize that, and it does humble you, and it does make you thankful, it's going to propel you to seek this out, to seek more of God's grace. And that's really what I'm encouraging all of us in this room to do is seek not just something we all have, the common graces of the Lord, but seek the saving graces of the Lord. Let's move on to the next one here in verse 31 uh, of chapter 17 where he said, Having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. You know, We know what God does. He wants us to move to repentance. We don't necessarily, from Acts 17, know how he does that. Like, how do we get there? How is that possible? How do unrighteous people just 
repent and become righteous, right? I believe that verse 31 gives us insight into that answer, and it's tied to a man. It's tied to one who it says here in verse 31, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. For those who... uh, For those who recognize God's graciousness to them and seek more, he has furnished proof that it is possible to be preserved at judgment. It'd be really sad if God said, you know, pursue this repentance as an extra, as a further grace that I can give you. And we did it, but he didn't really give us any proof that there was any substance to it. You know, and then what happens at the end of it all, we're still stuck. That would have been a really sad story for us, right? But God has furnished proof that that's not how it's going to unfold. In John chapter 1, I'd ask that you actually turn to this passage. In John chapter 1, we're going to read verses 14 through 17. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. John 1, 14 through 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of only, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The man of Acts 17, that's allows us to be righteous in a judgment of righteousness is the personification of grace. You know, God's given grace to every man. That's that common stuff we talked about, the existence and the sustaining and the nearness that he's somewhere to be found. But saving grace comes from Jesus because he is grace. Jesus provides us not only with like the personification or the picture of grace in a way that we can understand. But in fact, even in that passage, it says he provides grace upon grace. It's this idea of abundant grace. You might even, in the context of this lesson, think there's common grace and then there's saving grace. And Jesus is here to provide that grace upon grace, right? And so... We can't go through the whole story of Jesus here, but most of us in this room understand on a basic level how it unfolds, right? Jesus came to be grace, and he came to be truth. The truth is that there's judgment for unrighteousness. The grace is that Jesus said something like this, which I believe said this, which sums up really his grace. In Luke 23, 34, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, he did that, and he said that, in the middle of the process of him being killed. But that really sums up how he was grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' grace, or grace, suffered torture and death on our behalf. So, why does Jesus, or why does God provide us Jesus? as his saving grace, if you will. I'm going to read a couple verses, and this is where I got the title of this lesson. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. We're going to read down to verse 9. If you just want to follow along, that'd be great. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why does God provide us with Jesus as his saving grace? So that we can begin to understand just how immeasurably rich those graces are. I mean, you can't look at Jesus' life and his mission and conclude anything but God is gracious. Even after he had already been gracious in creating and sustaining and being near, he didn't even have to do that. He went above and beyond and gave grace upon grace when he gave Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, I'd like for you to follow along with this passage as well. It reads, Titus chapter 2 verse 11 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You know, in Ephesians chapter 2, God is trying to show us at least a glimmer of how immeasurably gracious he is. And ultimately, that leads us, right, to be... uh, to glory and praise in him. But in Titus chapter 2, we get some more insight. This grace of God brings salvation, and that's not the end of it. It's to produce a people that he can claim and that he can mold to do good works. And so, why does God provide us with Jesus as his saving grace, as his grace upon grace? So that we'll know just how gracious the Lord really is. And we'll praise and glorify him. But ultimately, that we can be a people that live like Jesus. That can be a people zealous for good works. So that he can have a possession, as verse 14 of Titus 2 says. If we don't... If we don't uh, understand we don't begin to develop an appreciation for God's grace. Um, I saw this quotation from Abraham Lincoln, and I thought this was kind of appropriate. If we don't recognize the common grace of the Lord, just the beginning stuff, God created us. How gracious. God continues to sustain everything we know here or wouldn't be here. Gracious. And that he's actually discoverable, that we can actually know who he is. He's gracious. We start to do something like what Abraham Lincoln says. Listen to this quote. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. 
too proud to pray to the God that made us. I think Abraham Lincoln had a good insight into what being self-sustaining does. And if we don't recognize God's graces to us and allow it to humble us and foster thankfulness and move us towards more grace, then we end up like that. So what's the application for all of this? What should I be doing now, now that I understand at least on some level some of the graces God has afforded me? Uh, One, kind of what I was just saying a moment ago, if you have not sought out God's saving grace toward you through Jesus, if you haven't been baptized into Jesus, if you haven't repented, if you haven't decided to live more faithfully to God's laws and commands and His uh, become a people for his own possession, all those things, you're kind of stuck at the common grace part. You just kind of experienced everything common to mankind that God has given, but you haven't moved into more grace. And so I would encourage you to seek something richer and better instead of just accepting, I would say, the first of many graces God wants to give you. C.S. Lewis has this quotation, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. If you've just stopped at the first grace, so to speak, that the Lord has given you, you're too easily pleased. God is offering you more. Move towards that. Jesus is grace upon grace. But if you're a Christian, if you say, yeah, I've recognized those common graces of God. He sustains us. He's near to me. He's created me, and I want more. And you've taken those steps, and you know Jesus, and you're trying to develop these graces and live in those graces These are some applications for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Hebrews 4, 16 reads this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. There's probably a lot of ways we can apply this. I'm just going to give you a couple. God's grace, rather than causing us to be cowards or weak because, oh, I need grace all the time, really should embolden us, right? It should strengthen us like Joshua, be strong and courageous. That's what grace should move us toward. So that when we're battling our sins and consequently maybe even the sins of other people, we tackle it head on because we're drawing near to the throne of grace because that throne lets us receive mercy and grace when we need it. That should be empowering to you. That shouldn't cause you to be weak and cowardly. This looks like maybe in those times you pray more, right? Sometimes we feel like we need to run away from God when we need grace. Oh, I've messed up, right? But rather God says, come closer in those times of need, right? So pray, read scripture. Sometimes we're afraid to read the Bible because what it's going to say, right? Well, maybe that's when exactly when we need it, right? Pray, read scripture, Meditate. Think about the things God has told you or instructs you. Think about your life. Have fellowship with people that you know are trying to live in God's grace. Sing. 
You know, sometimes songs are the best motivators for us. Sing about God's grace and remind yourself of those things. Use the grace of God in service to other people. Now, that sounds weird. How can I, like, tangibly, like, use the grace of God to, like, mold that and use it to help other people? 1 Peter chapter 4 gives us some insight into this. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it reads, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is very similar to the lesson that I presented a few weeks back on Romans 12. While we may not have these supernatural gifts of like prophecy or speaking of the oracles of God, we understand that either through experience or through the natural graces God has given us or the experiential graces God has given us, we can kind of do this stuff. And I think an appropriate way from Scripture here, 1 Peter 4, to think about that is that is the grace of God that allows you to use that gift. You have a gift that is a form of God's various graces. Use it to serve other people. And so that's a good application for us. For those of us that are Christians that want grace upon grace and are seeking that. God has given you grace in the form of maybe a skill or an ability that you can use to serve other people. Use it. Don't just sit on it. God's grace is not dispensed to be wasted. You have a responsibility to use that well. Help your brother understand God's grace. Show your roommate what a life of grace looks like. Be the employee that is known for graciousness. Those are just simple ways that we can do this. So, all in all, we must not be satisfied with only a taste of God's grace, those common graces we all experience, but rather seek to quench our thirst by drinking in grace upon grace from grace himself, Jesus. It is then and only then that we are able to conquer our sins, our troubles, and ultimately this world. I kind of feel weird about this lesson because when I was working on it, I was like, man, this seems really muddy and fast and I'm not really sure this makes sense. Still not really sure after having said all this stuff. But hopefully this lesson was clear in that like, God is gracious. I hope that's one basic truth we see in this lesson. And he's more gracious than we even sometimes understand. Our existence is grace. The fact that I will probably exist tomorrow is grace. That'll exist a minute from now is grace. And that God can be found and wants to be found is grace. Let's move from those graces into Jesus and serve graciously and seek grace upon grace. And I hope this church does that and I hope I do that. Um, and I'd hope that this year maybe that can be a big goal for you is finding ways to experience grace upon grace from the Lord. Well, I appreciate everybody listening and paying attention. If there's anyone at this time that needs the help of this congregation, whether it's moving from just those common graces and trying to experience the grace upon grace that Jesus brings, what better group of people to help you do that than people that have made that move themselves? Or maybe 
you kind of have experienced that from Jesus and you're not doing so well with that anymore. What better group of people to make that problem known to than people that have done that themselves and know what Scripture says to help get through that. Uh, this is the time that Stephen's leading us in this song is really your time to address whatever spiritual needs you have. And so we'd ask that you do that now. Stand if you want.